Get ready to tune in to stories of average men striving for greatness to become the leaders that are needed in their homes, in their career, and their communities. This is the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. Today, I have with me uh, just actually a really cool dude. At least I think so. Thanks so. JT Farr. Uh, I was introduced to JT through my friend, Alex. Uh, Alex and I are putting on the big event, Montana, and JT just happens to live in Montana. And uh, really, quite honestly, uh, I learned about him and I was super excited to talk to him. I've talked to him a couple of times and he has so many things in common with me and many of the guys that I hang out with, um, just the things he does with his kids the things he does in his free time. And uh, what's really cool is he's going to be actually doing the shooting aspect of our big event, Montana. So if you don't know about that, go to brotherhoodfatherhood.com, check it out. You'll actually see some footage of him on that promo video. We want you there. So check that out. Welcome to the show, JT. How you doing, brother? Very good. Thanks for having me, Scott. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, you and I, we just, we just kind of have been working through some technical difficulties. I mean, first of all, we wanted to try and meet when I was in Montana and you happened to be going to Moab of all places, which I had just gotten done being in Moab. So we missed, we crossed paths there. And then we've tried to, we've rescheduled for this a few times. I just feel like it's, uh, it's been a little work, but I'm really pumped. And then just right before we started, you like, I had you fill out a form and you said, okay, what are you interested in hobbies, activities, jujitsu, shooting, archery, mountain biking and camping. I'm like, Oh yeah, this guy's right up my alley. I already knew that, but uh, <laughs> I'm a, I've been excited to to talk to you. First of all, a little envy. I have never I've never done jujitsu, so like the big event is my launching pad for jujitsu. So do you train? Oh, awesome. At, do you train at that event or at that that dojo, or do you train somewhere else? Yeah, I've been at SVG there in Kalispell under Travis for the last three years. Nice, nice. Yeah, I I met Travis last month when I was in in uh, Montana previewing the area. Really cool guy. And what he's got set up for us. Phenomenal is, guy. Yeah, is is pretty cool. Business guy, uh, family guy, uh, quite the business guy, actually. He's got a lot of things going on. But I didn't know you're a mountain yeah. biker. Are you really into mountain biking? Yeah, yeah. Broke broke a couple bones doing it. So I'm that <laughs> into it. But <laughs> I've I've since um, dialed it back. So I switched from a full squish to a hardtail to force me to just kind of be a little bit more reserved. So I'm not broken with my kids and everything. Oh, no way. Okay. But so, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I owned a bike shop for six years in Oregon. So, um, oh, come on. Yeah, I know. See, it just keeps getting better. Uh, I still ride a full <laughs> squish. I actually fell out of love for cycling and that's a whole long story, probably based on the business. Well, actually it was based on the business and some of the things that happened and misplaced identity, which is probably something we should talk about a little bit is kind of how we find our identity as men as fathers, as husbands, yeah. as, um, as entrepreneurs and, and, you know, just living this life, but mountain biking is okay. When I came to Montana, I, mean, I live in Texas now it's flat. It's and as hot as I'll get out. Uh, all I could see was just the vast opportunity. And then I also thought of bears. <laughs> <laughs> Are bears a concern mountain biking in, in Montana? Yes. Uh, mountain biking in Montana, you, you have, uh, so if you wear like a camelback, you know, I've, I actually purchased specifically a camelback with the front pouch so that I could carry bear spray on my bike. Okay. So I've actually, um, in Oregon, uh, 2002 mother's day, I was out for a solo ride and got, this is in Oregon. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't you know, grizzly, but it was, it was a big black bear. Um, it was probably, I rode up, snuck up on him, didn't have any clue. He, he was coming down a fern covered bank embankment. Uh, oh gosh, 10 feet before we noticed each other or before I noticed him. That was a freaky moment. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have did a, you just spook him and you ran off. I did the most stupid thing possible. I, I was down at the bottom of a ravine. I was coming down the hill at a high speed and it was a, it was a water, you know, like water coming through the mountain. So he was on the, the other side of the embankment. I was coming down that and I was moving fast and, and quiet, full suspension. Of course, at that point, it was a long time ago, but I was on full suspension back then. And, um, and, and he was just there big, ugly, dirty as can get out. And I looked up and I, I did exactly what you're not supposed to do. 
I turned my bike around. And I ran a road as fast as I could. And, oh. uh, yeah. And I have no clue what he did, but I'm alive. <laughs> yeah. So I've been paranoid so ever you, since you did something right. What was, I got, I got yeah. out alive. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I started carrying bear spray after that started using a, a like a bear, a bear, uh, bell or, you know, a little bell on my handlebar. And I actually started carrying a handgun, which would probably would have been useless, but I, I started doing that as well. So, um, yeah. So I, I, that was the one thing I thought about riding in Montana was like, there's big bears there. That's yeah. Cool. I'll be fine if I never encounter one. <laughs> I'm good with it. Yeah. 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 But so, mountain, mountain biking Montana, so different from like, so I came from Missouri and oh, that's, yeah. you know, moved here in 2018. And I thought I knew what climbing was. Mm-mm. And then got Mm-mm. here and I was like, oh, this is a whole nother world. Like, the climbing is just insane because they have legitimate mountains here. Yeah. Um, but everything else was just like fast, flowy, you know, jumps. I went down to Bentonville. Um, oh, I don't know nice. if you've ever ridden there. It's Phenomenal. four hours from here. Cause everything. Just... Not. Oh, if you haven't gone, you have to make that trip. Okay. It's a day drive. I mean, it's a half day drive. There's no excuse. Yeah. yeah. No. And it's everything's so well groomed and well kept because I, I guess it's uh something about the, you know, the Walmart headquarters is there yep. and the grandfather, you know, one of the grandsons, my understanding is he's really into mountain biking. Yep. So then the grandfather is just like, Hey, we'll bring in all these professionals like trail makers and they'll, they'll do it right. So it's, it's kind of like this quiet mountain biking Mecca. Oh, dude, it, I, I'm on some Arkansas pages. Cause I, I, like I said, it's like a four or five hour drive from me. Um, at least that's my understanding. And, um, I've been watching those trails and they are insane. Uh, like flow. Everything I see looks like flow. So yeah, I love mountain biking. Yeah. It's where I kind of get that little, I know it's overused, but my Zen state is, you know, mountain biking or out in the wilderness, um, hiking or rucking. And, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but, uh, Texas doesn't, it has, it has, it has woods, but it's, there's not much happening here. So I might have to head up there, but uh, man, when I was visiting up in Montana, I, I fell in love. So how long you've been there since 2014? No, 2018. 2018. What took you to Montana from Missouri? Um, yeah, so after the Marine Corps, I uh, went to college at Mizzou. Kind of that was where all my family goes, uh, there in Missouri. And then uh, got out, had an awesome job working um, with a VA home mortgage place, uh, just doing like marketing and uh, compliance stuff. And just had this, I, you know, I just missed the... Uh, that calling from the military, from the Marine Corps of like serving and, you know, just the camaraderie of all of it. And so um, started talking with a, another buddy who was a Marine Corps veteran and was a uh, SWAT team leader for the police department there. And we kind of just had this idea, like, let's, you know, let's start a defense contracting firm where we'll only hire law enforcement and military veterans and give them good employment. And uh, we'll have like a ministry focus where we'll help, you know, churches and mission organizations kind of as a, at a discounted rate. And so they're doing that. And then I would get a call from an organization called Youth with a Mission, a missionary organization. They've got locations worldwide, but this specific one was here in Montana and Lakeside. And they called us up and said, hey, can you come out and do a risk assessment? And so we we flew up and like long story short, it just turned into a crazy Holy Spirit God moment that I felt like I was supposed to sell everything, sell my house, walk away from the business and take my family and I and go full-time missions and do, do the same sort of thing, like focus on protection, but do it in a biblically centered way for missionaries who are called to go overseas and take risks, but get them risk prepared. Wow. Wow. World. Yeah. So I know, I know, uh, YWAM youth with a mission for, from, when I was 14, my, my family decided to do a YWAM mission. And basically we went to, we went to uh, Belize and it wasn't like the, the tourist police. We literally kind of went <laughs> into the rainforest or jungle, whatever you call it there, a long car drive. And then I remember we, they said, okay, we're here. And I'm like, what? And we took all our stuff on a boat that like two people at a time could get on. There was a rope that went across this river <laughs> and or creek and they you know did the hand over hand thing on the rope 
And then we hiked, I don't know, another quarter of a mile. And then it opened, they'd opened up the, the rainforest there, jungle. I don't, like I said, I don't remember what you call it. And they had like these huts and uh, like a whole mission place there. And they were building it out. And we just went there and we helped build it. And then we hiked into some, um, some really far in areas and uh, re refugee areas. And, and we took them some clothes. That's all I remember. But I was 14, quite, a, quite an experience. So that's my experience with YWAM. Are they still kind of doing the same type of thing or what's what currently is their is their big movement? Yeah, they're they're still doing doing that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, the big thing is training, sending, preparing, and being missionaries. So that's that's kind of the the heart and the bread and the butter of it. And so they run schools where they bring, you know, young, hungry guys and gals in and they they train them up in uh, in the Bible, um, in discipleship, and then Send them out so they all do kind of outreaches during their schools but then some some of those people go through the school and then say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna make a, a life of this and so then they they work in different areas they teach those schools or they go into um you know a country overseas somewhere and actually just kind of embed and and live with with the people you know un, like learn the culture um do different like some of them will go places and teach English, but then there's always that ministry and, and sharing the gospel at the, at the heart and at the center of it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I want to rewind a little bit. You lit did, so you literally just stopped what you're doing. You had a, a good job. <laughs> and how did your yeah. wife feel about this? Hey, we're going to go to this place in Montana that you probably didn't either didn't either of you knew about where was, let's talk about kind of the fi family dynamics here, because I think a lot of men, Especially if you know if you have faith, if you, you you have a belief, and you're called to do something, there's this like, how's this going to impact my family? How do I navigate this? Or maybe starting your own business or whatever it might be. I think we'd love to hear kind of that process on your end. Yeah. So, um, so kind of little backstory. My wife and I, we we actually met in seventh grade. Never dated. Um, not for for failure of me trying. Um, but never dated. And then it was when I was in Iraq on my first tour, she was sitting next to a buddy of mine in college and he was on, he had my MySpace. So this is, if that oh, dates wow. me, yeah. he had my MySpace pulled up and uh, she looked over and she's like, Oh, is that, is that JT? And he's like, yeah, he's over in Iraq right now. And so she's like, will you send in my, my email? And so we get connected over email and uh, I said, hi. And it was just kind of, she was like, Hey, just want to let you know, like I'm, I'm praying for you and, you know, hope you're doing well, that kind of stuff. And it then quickly turned into us talking over email. Um, when I had access to phones periodically, I would call her. And wow. uh, so there was no, like I hadn't seen her in two years since high school graduation. And we continued talking and I, I just remember being there sitting on my bunk in, in our tent in Iraq and, my buddy's just like, what's up with you? And he's like, you've just been different. And I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think this, I think that, I think she's the one. And he's like, you're crazy. You, we've been in the sandbox too long. You just need to get home and <laughs> party and do this and that. And uh, anyway, so I was on my way back, you know, three months later back to uh, the States. And I had a, I think a two day layover in Germany. And I racked up a $150 phone bill talking to her. And told her like, hey, I'm going to be back in Missouri in a couple of weeks, and I'd like to spend that time exclusively with you. Again, have not seen her in two years. <laughs> so, uh, so this is back in 2006. So um, get off wow. the get off the plane. All my friends, some ex girlfriends, family, like, are all there waiting for me, and I don't see Anna anywhere. And I'm like, oh, she's you know, she's like, I'm. She changed her mind, got cold feet, whatever. And then I turn around and see her and she's standing. I think she, she always corrects me. I can't remember if she was late or if she went to the wrong gate, but something happened and she turns around and like, or I turn around and see her. She starts crying. I hadn't told my family or anybody about it, um, that I was talking to Anna or anything. It was, so everybody was surprised. Um, and then I was only home for two weeks. And after the first week, I think it was a, Friday night, 
we were making dinner. My dad and I were making dinner for my, for my mom and for Anna. It was like that first family dinner. And, uh, he pulled me aside in the kitchen and he said, if you let this one go, it'll be the big, biggest mistake you ever make. Oh, wow. And so I said, Oh, I probably ought to go get a ring then. And so now we've seen each other in person for a week now. <laughs> we've been <laughs> oh, talking for maybe three and a half months total. And I proposed the following Friday and then went back to California where I was stationed. And uh, we were married three months later. No way. Wow. So crazy, crazy story. Um, best advice my dad ever gave me. And that's, that's saying something because he gave me a lot of good advice. But uh, so we kind of we, we started that journey at that point. And then uh, she was she walked with me through the rest of my military time. Uh, she walked with me through going to college. So she was working at working full time so that I could go to school and focus on that. Um, she walked with me uh, by my side when I started the defense contracting firm and all the blood, sweat and tears that went into building that. And so we'd been through a lot, you know, and she, you know, I don't want to overlook this part of it too. There was a time when I got out of the military where I was, I was low. I was, I mean, I was in a dark, dark place and um, I would just basically, you know, just self-medicating with alcohol so that I could sleep through the night mm. sort of thing. And uh, she, she called me on it and, you know, held me accountable and said, you, you need to make a decision and then stood by my side when I went and walked through that and started going to the VA and started actually addressing things instead of just pretending like it wasn't an issue. And uh, through all that, I mean, she's been, she's just been rock solid and she's been by my side. And uh, so when, you know, fast forward, finishing college, starting the defense contracting firm. And then now this, I come back from a trip and I just tell her, I was like, Hey, you know, I, I don't know what God's doing, but I feel like we need to be ready. Like God's saying that something like there's going to be a radical shift. And so I told her about like what I felt like God was saying on the trip that I was, I was supposed to be there, but my family was supposed to be with me. And what does that mean? And this thing about the American dream just kept popping up everywhere. I mm. looked, it was like, there was just talking about the American dream, but it was focused on like the lie of the American dream. Yeah. And it just really challenged us of like looking at, we've built this up. We've got this 4,000 square foot house. We've got, you know, nice cars and all this furniture and stuff and stuff that we've been like building up our own little island. And I just felt like, you know, we both felt like God was saying like, are you willing to walk away from it? And so through a lot of prayer and talking to mentors and, you know, talking with one another, she's just like, I remember asking her, like, do you, do you feel, do you feel like you're hearing it? And she just looked at me and said, I don't need to hear it. If you heard it, that's good enough for me. Mm. You're my husband. I will follow you. And I'm just like, even thinking back just gives me goosebumps. It's nuts just how amazing she is. Um, but we, we said yes, and we started selling stuff. And the funny thing was, you know, in my kind of control, I'm going to control the scenario. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run this business sort of thing. Even in selling our stuff, I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll sell the entertainment center for 2000 and we'll sell this couch for 800 and people would come in and be like, Hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And I'm like this, I just bought this. It's worth this. And just felt convicted during that time of God being like, who's in control right now? Are you in control or am I in control? Mm. Because what I was doing was I was trying to, put a number to it like well if i can put this much money aside then i'll feel comfortable with this decision and so um in that time of just feeling convicted of that i was like okay i trust you god so i called up our our lo our pastor who had our church had just gotten a new building they had a big four-year and i said hey i got a crazy idea um would you be opposed to me loading up a tractor trailer and bringing all of our furniture um, my home gym, like all of our stuff and putting everything out there and then promoting it to the public that there's a massive sale. Everything's a dollar. Oh my gosh. And he's just like laughing. He's like, you guys are crazy, but yeah, I'm down. And so that's what we did. We loaded up everything, sold a king size bed frame and everything for a dollar, sold wow. a full, you know, weight rack for a dollar, 
sold everything. And I said, my only thing is I don't want to be the person, you know, Anna and I don't want to be the people exchanging money. So we had some friends do that. And I said, all we want to do is we want to go and meet the people that are going to be blessed. Hmm. And there was a, there was this amazing woman that was, I might get a little teary, but she was in the parking lot in an old beat down van and she was loading up the 128th item and her, her van is full and she's in tears. And she said, this will be the first year I've got 10 kids. And I think she said like 15 grandkids. And this will be the first year that I'm able to get every single one of them a nice gift for Christmas. Oh, wow. And she said, but I, I only have $128. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, wow. This is not about me. And it was that question, you know, with the, with the who's in control. The other thing that I was challenged with is like missions, like, or, you know, that calling on your life. It's like, it doesn't start once you arrive. It starts from the time you say yes. And we said yes. So we needed to start acting like it. Yeah. That's a, that's a, um, a huge leap of faith. Because you're you're leaving what sounds like it was a really well paying situation to uh, who knows what, and then letting go of everything for a dollar a piece. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure some people thought you were a little bit insane, but I I, you know, what is? I mean, I don't know how many people were blessed from that, and that's that's a pretty big deal. So then you, you, your wife was obviously on board. If she's willing to let go of all these material possessions for a buck a piece. Um, yeah. 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 That, it so doesn't, you, I mean, definitely don't want to just like paint a picture that we were, you know, ear to ear grinning, like everything's great. Oh my like gosh. It, was, it was scary. It was hard. There were times where we would, you know, be sitting there going like, did, did, did we hear things right? Like, are we, are we out of our mind? Mm-hmm. And it was, we just kept, kept telling each other, disobedience is not an option. Mm-hmm. Like if that's how small we can keep our world of all I have to do is just take one more step in obedience, but going backwards is not, not acceptable. This episode of the brotherhood of fatherhood podcast is brought to you by direct hemp, direct hemp are the CBD experts who stand behind all of their products, their providers, and all of the great science behind new innovations in the space. So I've been using some of their products, uh, specifically Charlotte's Web Sleep Gummies. This is a hemp extract infused gummy with melatonin. And I'll tell you what, my wife and I have both experienced amazing results from using these sleep gummies. We're sleeping better, we're waking up more refreshed, we're falling asleep faster, we're getting more REM sleep. I really pay attention to my sleep analytics. I have several apps and devices that actually record how well my sleep is, and these things make a massive difference. And why do I care? Because sleep improves, good sleep improves judgment, recovery, it reduces stress, it reduces inflammation, it improves memory and aids in weight loss, among other things. And these are all scientifically backed facts. So you need to be getting better sleep. And the best place to get your sleep products is through Direct Hemp. So check out the show notes. There will be a link to get 15% off. Use the coupon code BROTHERHOOD and you'll be on your way to better sleep with great tasting, very effective gummies, as well as hundreds of other brands and companies or uh, products that you will enjoy. Yeah. How do you get through, how do you get through the scary part of that? I mean, that's gotta be incredibly scary. Did you, were you, yeah, I don't even know how to ask that question. I just, I, I can't imagine really just kind of laying it all on the line like that. Did you have friends telling you were crazy or, or family or were, did you have a pretty good circle supporting you guys at that point? I mean, most people didn't understand it, friends and family. You know, we had family was probably more supportive than anybody, but even then it was kind of like, are you sure about this? Mm-hmm. Um, friends was a, it was a different, you know, it was, there were some friends that were like, this is, you know, you guys are, you guys are crazy, but this is awesome. Like God with you. And then I had other friends that were like, man, I feel, feel sorry for you guys. Like mm. you're going to, you're going to lose all this stuff. And it just like, that broke my heart. of like, 
oh, you don't get it. Yeah. You know, like it's not about the stuff. Like even just the lessons I'm getting to teach my kids through this of like, follow, follow your dream, follow what you're called to do. Um, you know, take risks and getting them like they actually have the experience and getting to see God show up and provide. Um, and that it's not, it's not, you know, we have to walk in obedience, but it's not that we are necessarily like responsible for all the, you know, for the outcome or the, the success or whatever that looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it takes something, it requires something of us, but there's more at play than that. Um, but I think making that decision, going back to that, that question, making that decision and, and kind of the fear and how did we move past and through that? I think it was looking back and reflecting on the times, the small times in, in my life up to that point where I had seen God show up. And, uh, and I had also had a lot of, a lot of time in prayer, you know, while I was in the Marines and even after, and, you know, especially I think when I was walking through that dark period of time for that, like two years after I got out of the military, um, where I was praying and saying like, God use me. Like I, I want to, not for my glory, not for my recognition. Like I don't want the limelight, but what I don't want to be is just a spectator. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to just be on the sidelines. Like if I'm here for a purpose, I want to walk in that, whatever that means. And um, I think that this happening and, and at the same time being called, but also knowing that God put a calling on me, that he's given me this protector's heart in a, in a different way, you know, not, I think sometimes like the protector heart thing can get a bad rap, but in a way that like, how do, how do you, how do you be empathetic? Like, how do you help someone who has ill intent come down from, you know, that, that place of escalation and, and actually like advocate for them, show them that you're there with them, not, not like excusing their behavior, but I'm, I'm validating their perspective. I'm, I'm trying to um, be someone because maybe they haven't had it, but be someone who will listen, who will walk through that situation with them. And like, you know, we have a, with mission 91, we have, like a foundational mission statement and that's to see and be Christ to people in the midst of their worst days or decisions. And so it's not just the people who something bad has happened to them, but it's also the people who are making bad decisions. Like how do you not let our, like our flesh, our worldview cross over and still be Christ to people when frankly they're being a turd. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and that's, that was kind of the calling that I clung to of like, okay, I mean, this is, this is that answer to prayer. God's going to use me. Mm -hmm. When I first, uh, when, when Alex first told me, well, we should see if JT will do a shooting thing. And, and I had no idea who you were or what you did. Uh, I said, well, I, you know, my, my first response to him every time he talks to somebody is like, introduce me to him. I want to get on the phone <laughs> with him. <laughs> yeah. And his response was, Oh, uh, I think, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he's like, he's in, uh, he's in the Ukraine right now and, uh, I'll connect yeah. you when he gets back. And <laughs> my brain went to what, what in the world? I had no clue what you did. And this was right. I think right at kind of when this thing was all kind of going down, with the war and um, you could correct me, of course, but, um, and he, he said, he said, oh yeah, he does something. Um, it, it's a ministry. And I was really quite honestly confused. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk to you and kind of get some clarity on it, but for the listeners, like uh, what, what exactly are you doing? Cause I think it's real interesting. It's, it's incredibly unique and not thinking something I would have ever thought of. What exactly are you doing to, I mean, why were you in Ukraine? And w when you travel to places, you mentioned South Africa, you mentioned some other places. What, what exactly is your role? Yeah, so when I, you know, came into, into uh, missions, um, you know, I was working alongside the guy that was, had just taken over kind of the quote-unquote security department for YWAM Montana. 
Um, and the reason why we were doing the risk assessment is because he's like, he had no background, no experience um, or understanding of security, what that looks like. So he's like, hey, let's like bring in some people who can give us some guidance. And he and I, like, it was just kind of a, a God appointed meeting between the two of us. And we're, you know, we just kind of clicked, you know, it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, I don't know what it is, but we're going to, we're going to be getting to know each other. And uh, I continued, you know, once we got here, was working with him. Um, I had had the opportunity during my time in defense contracting to uh, write a lot of a curriculum um, with the assistance of some just brilliant people that are way smarter, way more experienced than I am in things like, you know, verbal de-escalation and um, uh, situational awareness and all these other things. And and so I would spend my time just sitting down with Matt and just teaching him just, Hey, here's, here's everything that I have. Like, if this will help you, uh, we were starting to like put together plans. And in that time of like learning and talking and, and teaching, it was just kind of that the, the call started to get clear and we started to understand like there was something bigger at play. And that's kind of where mission 91 based off Psalm 91 was born of like being a refuge. And so we, we created, it started off just kind of here. We were just kind of training handfuls of missionaries that were leading teams overseas. Um, but then it got bigger. Um, word started getting out. People started calling us. And so uh, at some point, you know, probably a year and a half in, God just kind of downloaded this, these four pillars of focus for us in our ministry. So like the first pillars to uh, prepare missionaries to be risk prepared. So that's like running trainings, um, for outreach leaders, you know, you got a 20-year-old that's going to go take 15, 17, and 18-year-olds over into another country, and they're responsible for them. It's like, okay, we need to be good stewards of these kids that we've been entrusted with, and we need to be prepared to look out for them and take care of them on these outreaches. So we run those trainings, and then the second pillar is to protect those uh, that are entrusted to us. So that's our YWAM campuses. Um, our property, our students, our missionary members, and that's more focused on training up refuge teams. So oh. kind of think of like a safety team, but they, they handle all like kind of the, the security for the campus. So we train them in how to do that in a way that aligns with our, you know, with our um, mission statement that C and D Christ people in the midst of the worst days and worst decisions. And then the third pillar is to pursue the spheres of uh, our, sorry, pursue our spheres of influence. So within that like protector sphere, you've got, you know, you've got the jujitsu guys, you've got the firearm guys, you've got, you know, like there's people, you've got the military law enforcement and it's our opportunity to, you know, take off our teaching hat and put on our learning hat and go and, you know, do life, do this, these hobbies, these things we enjoy doing um, elbow to elbow with them and like have that, that time of fellowship, that just time of getting to know people in, in our community and that are like-minded. Mm-hmm. And then finally participate in the great commission to the ends of the earth. And that's, you know, we, we want to practice what we preach. We don't want to just sit and behind a podium and be teachers, but we want to go and actually do the things that we teach others. And, uh, and so that means saying yes to those trips, those outreaches overseas, oftentimes into higher risk areas. So, you know, if, if we're the, I always say like, never teach it, you know, where your understanding is, you should always be, your understanding should be beyond anything that you're teaching. And so that's a way that we're always kind of getting stretched and learning is to go to the higher risk places that may other, other even missionaries may say like, I don't, I don't know if it's a good time. Like, I don't know if that's a smart decision. It's not like we're just kind of running into the front lines and being reckless, but it's like, okay, if there's a way that we can go and serve in a, a wise capacity, then let's do it. And so that's, that's kind of what happened with Ukraine. It was, um, I think, three weeks, two weeks or three weeks after things really kicked off. And uh, they had some YWAM campuses there. Um, and one in Ternopil was, you know, running some operations. I don't want to give too much. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just want to be careful about what I share. But um, so we probably for just the sake of 
safety leaving leaving the mention of any cities out would be ideal but mm-hmm. um so we we went over to ukraine and we worked with um some contacts there that were responsible for basically running food uh, medical body armor everything into the country and they would go into the far east and then they would uh, offload, you know, distribute all the items, and then they would take their empty vans and load them up with refugees and drive them all the way back across to Poland um, or some of the other borders. So when we got there, we didn't know what it was going to look like. We didn't know if we were going to need to drive. We didn't know um, if we needed to just, you know, load and unload vans. Um, but the one thing we knew is that we just needed to to be a blessing, not a burden. And so we didn't want to come in saying, you know, we're from America, we we can help you. It's just kind of like, no, we're here. If there's a way that we can assist, like you need somebody to cook foods or clean bathrooms, like just use me. I'm here for whatever you need. Um, but if you have any needs in these areas, like we're happy to help. Um, you don't have to use any of our ideas, but we do have some ideas because we pretty quickly saw like these these teams are just going nonstop. Like drivers are going, you know, 20 hours straight, dropping stuff off, maybe getting an hour nap and then jumping back in the van and driving another 20 hours. Oh, wow. And you've got like one driver per van, three vans in a convoy. And it's just like, this is something bad is going to happen. Just, just with complacency, right? Like you can't sustain that. And so, um, we helped put together a plan, um, training for the drivers, uh, a kind of a, a dispatch center to be able to track all the, the trips back and forth um, so that they could know and be able to check in on drivers, um, knowing when they should get to certain checkpoints, when they should arrive, um, managing crew rest, making sure people are getting the proper rest that they need, uh, maintenance on the vehicle. So we just kind of overhauled that system and uh, helped with it. And then we did, uh, all their shelter in place procedures. So we wrote their, their policies and procedures for shelter. So sandbags for their lower windows, mm. food, water, um, medical blankets, everything that they would need to be able to be locked down in place for um, at least two weeks. Um, and then we did their evacuation protocol. So we just helped them with a lot of system stuff and then, um, you know, kind of assisted with, the drivers and the evacuation of, of refugees and got to spend time at the border um, and just praying with people. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was a lot. It was, we, were, we were only there for two weeks, but uh, in that two weeks, those those people that we met there, those Ukrainians just became family to us. And uh, I can't I can't wait to go back and get to spend spend some time with them outside of wartime. Yeah, yeah, I hope that happens soon. I, I, I'm kind of left here, like trying to navigate how people might be like, what their mind is going through. Cause right now my mind is going through, um, you're using your giftings, like the things that you're really good at and you're not like, you didn't go in to shove them down anybody's throat. However, I'm sure those are incredibly impactful things. First of all, are these all skills you got in the Marine Corps? Is that where you really learned these these skills with um, situational, you know, awareness and preparation and and those those things, or is it the securities work afterwards, or what's the where'd this all start? <laughs> yeah, it, honestly, it's kind of been this. Like I look back and just see how God just kind of had this, his hand on things. And so I feel like it's been something where it's always like this prepared you for this, and this will prepare you for this. And it's kind of just adding to, um, so prior to joining the Marines, um, you know, just just growing up in Missouri, my dad was a cop and a firearms instructor for 36 years, I believe before he retired. Um, so I was always kind of in that, like I was always, you know, at the police department, I was always, always around those guys. Um, and that, like that mindset, that heart to, you know, like, no, we, we, we protect others. We stand up for others if they're unable to stand up for themselves. And then when joining the Marine Corps, 
it was like okay we've, we're adding on some some tools here like there is definitely the the situational awareness aspect and things and and then after that in uh you know the defense contracting it got more into the you know be de-escalatory right we're not we're not at war anymore like now we actually have to care for people and we have to like calm situations down if possible and so then started to to learn and it was people that were just brought into my life that uh hearing their their experiences and their expertise just I had so much respect and was like I just want to absorb as much as I can from you and so I would just spend time just talking with them asking them questions and that was kind of where like curriculum starts getting built and um, and then I've always kind of been a systems guy. Like I like, I like organization logistics. And so those kind of things from the military and then even in college and things kind of played into helping being able to look at, look at systems, look at policies, training schedules, and like those logistics of how you kind of like best prepare a, um, you know, a campus or a church or an organization or, uh, also, you know, a lot of that came from starting up, starting up my own business. Like you have to kind of learn how to do those things. And a lot, honestly, it's, a lot of times it's trial by fire, but it's been, it's been those little experiences and lessons learned that have played into kind of that overarching, like these, these giftings and these skill sets that um, I've just been privileged to gain over time. This is going to be kind of a broad question. But I mean, you're obviously using these giftings um, in your skills to to serve. And I, I don't even think it's fair to ask this, but I often wonder, like, if I'm using my giftings to the best, the best that I can. Do you, when you when you kind of peer out at humanity and men, I mean, there's several angles I want to go here. I want to go from a protector, the protector's mindset. So. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, but one of the guys coming to the event that you'll probably meet is Jason Piccolo, and he has a podcast called The Protectors, and it's all about um, you know being prepared and what that looks like. And um, what is your, where do you see the biggest deficit from? And again, this is a really broad question. Uh, men today in our, in our society, and maybe in others, since you are so um, adept in, in other cultures and such. Where do you see the biggest gap in our protector role? Mm. I think it's, I think the biggest gap is our tendency to equate like protectors with uh, that kind of almost extreme, I don't want to like extreme masculinity of like, I have to puff out my chest and go toe to toe. And that's, that's what it means to be a protector. Mm. Um, if I can be really honest, this is what I encounter the most. When I'm working with a missions organization and I'm providing like training for, say, their, you know, whether it's outreach leaders or their, their safety teams, oftentimes the biggest hurdle that I have is you know, like empowering them to be able to take control of the situation. You know, to like to have to have that confidence to to walk with authority um, and still do ministry. Like they get the ministry part, but it's the kind of the getting them to be a little bit more assertive is mm -hmm. the difficult part. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I work with church teams and stuff, it's oftentimes like I have to remind them that they are a ministry. And so I say outside the walls of of ministry context, I think we or like missions context. I think that. Um, we don't spend enough time honing the skills of, you know, active listening, empathy, caring for others, and how much, like, I think we, we associate that with, like, being weak or being too sensitive. And I think that you can be a strong, assertive, masculine man, and you can still be tenderhearted and care for people. That's really good. And it crosses over into how I father, you know, how I come alongside my wife during difficult times. Um, you know, like there, 
that's a time where I need to, I need to, to be vulnerable. I think we as men put up, tend to put up a wall as soon as we start to feel like there's vulnerability. Right. But I feel like we, we miss the opportunity to be the best version of, of ourselves when we do so. Yeah, I, I believe that I, I, I say this a lot in the group and in some of the content is that uh, vulner, vulnerability is, is more of a, is, is really where we grow. It's really the place where we can step into a new level of who we are, what we're designed to do and who we're designed to be. Um, I'm just trying to unpack the, the, uh, the balance that men might be misunderstanding or not not getting between that loving, caring, understanding person and then the person who's prepared to uh, do whatever it takes to, you know, protect. It's, it's definitely, I'm, I'm guessing probably the hardest part of your job is, is managing uh, and helping people understand the, the gap or the, actually the intertwining that happens with those two things. Yeah. Think, let me know if this doesn't address the question, but my thoughts are big picture is that, you know, being well-rounded. Mm-hmm. So being well-rounded to walk into situations and have the heart to resolve it. So like to work through the problem, not just to meet the, the problem with force. And we're talking, you know, in a protector's context, context like, my end goal is always to de-escalate, like bring things back down, but then having the capacity to say, like, if this person is dead set on amping things up, then I, I'll be prepared. I'll be well-rounded to be able to meet that, but it's going to be their call. This episode is brought to you by Dapper Guru. Dapper Guru are men products that help you look good while conquering the world. Let's face it, gentlemen, we should not be using our wife's soaps and oils and such. We should smell like men and use products developed specifically for men. My friend at Dapper Guru, Robert, created these products. He tests these products. He is the real deal. This is a veteran-owned veteran supported company and the cool thing is is if you go to that web page and put in the code brotherhood you will get 10 percent off all of your purchases i use the products my son uses the products josh uses the products you should be using the products that's dapper guru check out the link in the podcast notes go place an order place a small order check it out uh and you will know why we use these products Yeah. So it's more of that. Yeah. It's, it's an empathetic approach. Like first we have to meet the human and make sure that we can do everything we can outside of violence. Uh, how do you, jujitsu obviously probably plays a really good role in that for you. Cause I imagine that's more of the, okay, if it does get to this point, what's the least damaging way that we can, uh, uh, help, uh, deescalate. Is that something you train people on or, or talk about, or is that outside of your purview when you, when you're working with these, with these people? Well, I mean, I'm, I'll just say, you know, I'm, I've only been training for three years, so I feel like I'm scratching the surface. Oh, of um, course. Yeah. But jujitsu has been so amazing in learning humility. I mean, it just brings out the rawness of the things that I think as each of us, we try to like kind of bury down and pretend like it isn't, you know, a part of us, but it jujitsu in this beautiful way, like forces it to the surface and you have to make the choice of, are you going to address it and work through it? Or are you going to quit? Like those are really the two options. And and so there's, there's so much good there, but yes, to answer your question, the, the effectiveness and the beauty of jujitsu and how you can safely control someone to where they're not getting hurt, I'm not getting hurt, and no one else around them is getting hurt. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, that's the thing that's uh, like that addiction of like, I want to learn everything I like. I want to dedicate until I can't move anymore, like the pursuit of learning this and mastering it. 
but like I said, I'm, I'm three years in, so I'm barely, I'm barely scratching the surface so far, but it's been, it's been amazing. And it's such an effective tool. I would recommend it to anybody, whether it's just, you know, the gym culture is amazing. So the people are great. The, you know, it's not too hard on your body. I mean, I'm not going to lie that back pain is a legitimate thing. And I can't imagine for the guys that have been doing it for, you know, five, 10, 20 years. Um, but then also the skill of being able to, um, to walk into a scenario and it does give you, you know, even at my lower level, like under a, a, a confidence, say like, if something were to happen, I, I feel like I have a level of, of understanding of actually what I am capable of instead mm-hmm. of, you know, I think a lot of us get sucked into the, the ideal self of, you know, <laughs> we all know that guy like, yeah. Oh, if this happened, I would just do this. And it's ever, if it's ever just like, I would just, then we're looking at, we're talking about ideal self. And we, we, Oh man, we harp on that. So much in our training of like, we, we want to um, give people the opportunity within like our training for mission 91 to actually have a practical application. So like an evolution where they go into a scenario and there's actors and there's actual consequences that like they could fail it. Um, but it's a safe place for them to fail, but it's a place for them to learn like, okay, I didn't respond to that how I thought I would. Like I did get emotionally charged when he started to, you know, like verbally attack my spouse. Like we put them in those scenarios where now it's not just, I would just, or I think this, it's like, no, you're here, you're in this, you know, simulation. And now you get to see the rawest parts of yourself come to light and come to the surface and you have to address it. And so we get to, you know, pause the, pause the simulation and say like, why did you say this? Why did you do that? Like ask those questions, challenge them, have them try something different and then go back into the simulation. And through that, they actually learn like, okay, now I know how I can respond. I know how I will respond next time it happens. And I think that's the, that crosses over into jujitsu actually having like that you know that fight for control and for dominant position you know with someone and knowing like this is where I'm lacking this is where my strong suits are and it gives you a confidence to be able to like walk in the world and say like okay I actually know what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of and it just switches over to and I love the fact that I'm not going to use it like I don't have to use it right like they all the guys that are, you know, highly, highly trained have been doing this for, for years are always the least likely ones to ever instigate a fight. They will do everything in their power to verbally deescalate it, walk away, unless they're forced to engage. Mm-hmm. And I think it just crosses, crosses over so well that when you, when you actually know what you're capable of, you're, you're less likely to try to jump the gun to use anything. That's a, I'm not trying to puff you up, but that's probably the best explanation I've ever heard from somebody who hasn't done it yet. Like, because I, I've spent, you know, you listen to podcasts, if you listen to podcasts of any sort in the man sphere, I guess you're going to hear people talking about jujitsu. And I've sat here and struggled and struggled and struggled because I have a lot of physical outlets. I already do. And a lot of training I already do. And I'm like, okay, something's going to have to give. I'm going to have to give a little time and I'm going to have to move money from here to there to do it. And it's always been this journey, this, this, this mental battle of the trying to understand the deeper, the deeper thing about it. And it's interesting because you really kind of wrapped it up in a bow for me last Sunday. I was, or Saturday evening, we actually were at church with my family and it was weird. It's a very large church. And I thought, man, what happened? What would happen if somebody came in with a, with a, with a threat and I had that like ideal idea of what I could do in that case. And then it, it hit me that that was probably not reality. I remember what triggered me. There was a, I didn't know he was a cameraman, but there was this guy walking slowly, really looking around with a bag over his shoulder and his hand was on the bag. I'm like, what is going on here? Um, but then I saw a camera later, you know, but my brain like turned on immediately and I was like dialed in. I'm like, okay, so I started to think like, oh, this could go bad. What am I going to do? And um, it was that, that day, that night, I was like, 
I really need to do jujitsu because one of the fastest things that you can do is deescalate or, or subdue somebody, hold them down without, you know, and reduce. It's just really interesting. I think we all need to go through the practice of this ideal practice, this ideal response we might have in our head, and then really kind of coming to the reality of what it is that we actually can do and would do in those circumstances. One thing I really like to do is think through those scenarios. My wife and I were um, last year in Costa Rica and we got on a boat for a, a fishing and uh, snorkeling like tour. And it was a private one. And we didn't know this. We got hooked up and we went out in this boat. And we're like, whoa. And um, it occurred to me that we were just miles from Nicaragua. We were at the very north section. I'm like, in the middle of that ocean, where however far out we we're at, I'm like, this guy's going to the right. And he needs to be going to the left. Because right over there is the shore of Nicaragua. And I was starting to like... And my whole brain that whole time was like, okay, I read an article about, you know, um, the value of Americans and are these guys Mm -hmm. taking me over? So my brain from that moment on, for some reason, just started to always think through situations, but it always comes back to, I need to do jujitsu because this is what everybody talks to. I'm really excited to get started. I don't know why I'm putting it off, but that was kind of like, I'm going to wait till this big event. So I'm there with everybody who's never done it before as a newbie, but um, man, you got me tickled to get started. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a strong desire at this point. So what got you started Um, in it? Um, one, I just want to say like that. I'm stoked. I'm, I'm stoked. You're going to get into it and it's uh, fun. And one thing I wanted to say that that made me think of, you're talking about the situation in the, in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we teach like active, violent intruder response training. So kind of similar to run, hide, fight, but it's escape, barricade, engage, and more yeah. emphasis on like the skill sets and how to barricade. So we give this training and without fail, I usually have like one or two people come up to me after the class and they're like, man, that was, that was good. Like, honestly though, like if, if a shooter walked in, I would just, I would just tackle him. I would just do this or, you know, I'd just shoot him. And uh, my response is always like, Oh, okay. Like, what are you doing to train that? Exactly. Like, what, what are you, what are you doing to prepare yourself to know that you can actually make that shot or you can control that weapon? Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, you've got people running in all directions in the, you know, in the front of and behind your target. Um, you've got the adrenaline dump. You've got all these elements. If you're not actually being intentional about putting yourself in that sort of like even just physical, mental stress and then getting yourself to perform, then it's ideal self all day long. Yep. Yeah. And that kind of kind of goes into like why I got into jiu-jitsu was um, I kind of explored it for a little bit um, back in Missouri and uh, you know coach Travis talks about this a lot about like you know picking a picking the right gym of like you know Mm -hmm. you should you should you should be looking for cleanliness like you want to know how clean the mats are go take a look at the bathroom right like that's it's going to be a good reflection of how seriously they take cleanliness and so cleanliness is important and then the next thing is like the diversity on the mat like can you look out on the mats for a regular class and just kind of sit in and watch like you should be able to see younger guys and gals older young older guys and gals like both genders different age groups all training together like that's a good training environment like and then third i think he says like what what kind of stuff do they do for kids like is there an emphasis on on kids uh jujitsu and uh the first gym i went to had none of that it was um you know maybe seven guys in their mid-20s just Mm. going full ham trying to kill each other Mm -hmm. and so i i showed up they didn't do any sort of like foundation stuff like hey here's the fundamentals of movement or anything it was just kind of like all right here's your here's your belt here's your gi uh, you know, we're going to do these warm ups, and then we're going to jump into class. And so, you know, within the first like 30 minutes, I'm getting slammed with like shoulder into the ribs. Um, and I was just like, I, I didn't know how physically people stuck with it because I did have a couple fractured ribs um, after the first couple weeks. And then shortly after I was like, I just can't, 
I can't do this. Like my body hurts so bad. I can't continue training this. Um, so maybe I'm a sissy. I don't know, but I just, it wasn't for me. And so I stopped. And when I got up here to Montana and we're building, you know, mission 91, there's that element of like, okay, you know, we've got like the, the physical, like we want to, we want to prepare ourselves like those different tools in the tool belt of like, how do I first recognize when something's awry, like the situational awareness part. And then the next level is like, I want to be able to like address things and verbally communicate in a way that is, uh, you know, de-escalatory and that can resolve issues and not cause issues. And then third, like I want to be prepared that if I have somebody that is set on going hands-on with me or with somebody else that I have the skill sets and the, you know, the, the practical ability to be able to address that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I didn't want and what, what I knew wouldn't make sense is doing something like Krav Maga or something, you know, something very like uh, strike focused. Right. That it would be a hard sell in ministry to say like, all right, like we're going to go over eye gouges today. Like, it's just not gonna, <laughs> it's not gonna fit the same way no. um, as being able to show somebody how you can close distance, um, how you can, you know, take down and control somebody in a way that's like, no, they're safe. I'm safe. Everybody else is safe. And we can basically stand by and wait for authorities to show up, mm. which is kind of like the, the, the level of which most ministries feel comfortable, you know, handling engage, any sort of engagement. Um, but then also the, the, the skills within jujitsu of like how to break contact and escape and get away. Like, that's really good. That's really good for, um, you know, females going on outreach overseas where, you know, you talked earlier about Nicaragua of like kidnapping and sexual assault and all these other things are, are real risks in different countries as well as, you know, here, right here at home. But how do we prepare ourselves to be able to, address that you know like provide them with the most the best training that we can before we send them out into the world yeah and yeah. so um you know i i joined about three years ago and um had heard about jujitsu from some different people at church i think if if that if i remember correctly i was like oh yeah i'll go maybe i'll go check check it out and it was a totally different experience like great blast gym was completely different than my experience at this gym back in missouri where it was like the first three months or so are hundred percent focused on just keeping the new guys together with the new guys and going over the fundamentals of movement. Um, just the real, like the basics, you know, just mastering basics, master the basics. And then once you've like learned how to be a good training partner, you've, you know, kind of got those fundamental movements, at least kind of like a, a, a knowledge base of them. Then you kind of move over into the combat athletes program and get to do classes with all the the more experienced jujitsu practitioners mm. and then i've been been stuck into it ever since <laughs> well you know i came to montana a couple of weeks ago and uh it was my first time ever in a jiu-jitsu gym in a bajillion years and i never did it like with any mindset before it's just because i knew some people that owned one and uh watch for a while and it was a very, very impactful, uh, I was like, this is different. One, I saw how clean it was. One, another thing, I saw everybody in there was smiling. They were sitting there, they yeah. were doing these drills and they were all smiling and having a great time. And I'm like, this is what I wanna be a part of. And um, it gave me a whole new light and actually really lit my wick. My, I told my wife, I'm like, I, I don't know if I can wait. Like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm waiting. <laughs> um, but now I'm, I'm even more, I'm even more jazzed up. We, should, we, we probably could do a whole podcast just about that because I think it's hard for guys outside of that realm to understand, like you paint, like I said, you painted such a really great picture of all the different like aspects and reasons why it just makes sense. Um, so I really appreciate that because that, that really helps me a lot too. Plus I need to go visit this local, local place that actually, um, uh, Alex Jowdy there that, you know, uh, helped me find. And yeah. you know, that's, a, and then we talked to Travis about it. Travis actually knew the guy that runs this one. So it's like, okay, that means that that's good. So I'm pumped, man. Mm-hmm. I'm really pumped. We're out of time and I'm bummed. Um, you, uh, you know, quite frankly, um, live pretty extraordinary life and have taken some major steps out of faith. And that's really cool. And I think there's so many lessons that we can te- 
each take from that. And I know that I'm going away thinking about, you know, where have I not been obedient to things that I've been called to do and where do I have room to grow? And uh, also facing the, the reality that that's going to be incredibly uncomfortable at times. So uh, I really appreciate yeah. you sharing your story. Oh, thank you so much. It's a, an honor and a, pri a privilege to get to chat with you. And I, I can't wait to get to see you here in uh, a couple months for the big yeah. event. I'm, I'm pumped. Yeah, I am too. Uh, thanks again. Hey, everybody. Uh, JT is easy to find. He's on, um, on Instagram. We'll put all his, all his contact stuff in the, uh, in the show notes. And most importantly, if you're kind of intrigued and want to learn more from just incredible dudes like JT and, Travis, who we're talking about, then you got to make a way to get to the big event. And I'm going to first say it's not cheap. It's not easy. Kalispell is not the easiest place to fly into. It's not the cheapest place to fly into. And we have these nice little gas prices that are making it even harder. But I'm telling you what, it's going to be completely worth every penny. Invest in yourself, invest in your family by exposing yourself like to people like JT. That's, that's the whole idea is getting you in front of people who will challenge you and pave a path for you on uh, ways to step into your better self. So again, brotherhoodfatherhood.com. Again, JT, thank you so much, brother. Thank God. Thank you for listening to the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends, your family, and follow us on social media. If you are a father, make sure you join our Facebook group, The Brotherhood of Fatherhood. Hit the subscribe button and tune in next time for more podcasts from the Brotherhood of Fatherhood.